Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. This episode is coming out on the 25th of July and it is a little bit later than I anticipated. I did tell you in the last episode, I hope to have a two week gap, but I think this has been a three week gap. The way that my year is sort of panning out, I'm kind of just putting out episodes as I can organize them, as I can edit them. My days and my time at school is becoming more and more intense as is my time with my children. So I am taking the expectation of myself and you know what I wonder if any of you really care how long they come out um, or how much time there is between them so it's really only me that seems to worry about it so I'm just going to bring it out as it feels comfortable and as I can enjoy the process of it. I have a really really impressive guest on today called Luca Parry I think I have said that correctly so I'd like to read a little bit of his bio because it is honestly inspiring He works globally to enable a world of thriving learners across schools, companies and organisations. He speaks on innovation, leadership and change within education. He's a rapid learner. He speaks five languages, has visited over 80 countries and holds two master's degrees, one in instructional leadership from the University of Melbourne and another in implied linguistics. He has been a teacher. He has been a principal and he is now founder of The Learning Future, He has his own podcast, he works as a consultant and I will have all his info in the show notes so that you can go and find out more about him because he really is one aspirational leader and that's something that he speaks about often. He likes to talk about himself as aspiring and hopeful in every aspect of his work. I cannot believe that it's term three, already three weeks in. My year 12s have one more final sack to go before getting into the exam preparation so We really are getting to the pointy end of this term or this year. I should say, I cannot believe it's gone so quickly. As you can hear by my voice, I have struggled a little bit with illness in Victoria. I think after two years of being locked down, many of us have been sick in some way. So if that has been you, I hope you have a speedy recovery. If it hasn't been you, I hope you avoid altogether. If you aren't following me on Instagram, go there at Educating Laura. You'll have more information about what I'm doing, where I'm at. And when the next episode comes out and um, who I'm looking forward to interviewing. Okay, thank you for being here and I will see you soon. Hey, Luca, how are you? Hello, Laura. It's great to be here. I'm very well. I would like to start off with a conversation around how and what you teach. Okay, sure. Let's get straight to it. Uh, It's funny, like I actually don't think I can answer that question without an explanation of who I am and who we are as human beings, because really that's what I teach, I guess, is mm-hmm. how do we like, really unlock the potential that exists in all of us as teachers, as learners, as human beings. And that means kind of really becoming conscious of some of the unconscious biases and mental models that we all hold, like questions like what is a school for or what does it mean to be successful in the world? Or you know, how might I contribute to the world? I mean, those are the really key questions. 
pretty practically, I'm 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 quite inspired by some of the work that colleague amazing colleagues do around the world around transformation. It really is how do we have system shift? How do we change the way schools operate and function by looking at the purpose, the power structures within them, the pedagogical core? You know, I'm an educator by training. So, I mean, really, I just love to talk about all of these aspects. How do we become whole again? How do we do whole brain learner-centered education, human-centered education, which means including the teachers always in this because it's a human system ultimately. So that's what I teach, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm also quite a nerd, as you would know already. But, you know, the idea around we've got technology, you know, exponentially shifting and accelerating. How do we become more human in this digital world? How do we make sure that we're not at the mercy of the attention merchants and surveillance capitalism? How do we ensure that well-being is elevated, as I think, perhaps the entire purpose of our existence, and make sure that we have rigorous but not rigid ways to create human growth and development? And so that that's at every single level of the system, every single part of society. So maybe I should give the listeners some background as to your educational trajectory because you have obviously been an educator in leadership now outside the classroom. So how has that looked? It's looked like me following curiosity, Laura. <laughs> it hasn't been a plan or a strategy. There might have been earlier on in my when I was in my 20s that kind of, yeah, I'm going to go out and do this and that. Now it really is like, what is drawing me? Like what really lights me up? And because mm-hmm. I think when we get that alignment in our own lives as teachers, as parents, as workers, as learners, we know that that's when we're actually giving our best to the world. We're being, you know, kind of our best self. So I, yeah, I have done all those roles. That's true. And I mean, you, I can connect the dots looking backwards as Steve Jobs once quipped, but you can't connect them looking forwards. Mm. So I feel like now my role in some ways is like a, physiotherapists like the real athletes are educators in my view right they're the ones you know frontline educators who are quite literally wiring the brains of our young people and that is the foundational basis for social prosperity like every every every, anyone that really knows these things that education quality education is the biggest investment we can make and so i'm kind of on the sidelines now trying to synthesize some of the big ideas the cutting edge research and then help leaders and schools and, and education systems really to be able to evolve by letting go of some of the legacy mental models that we have around this is what a school must be to, okay, what could a school be? What does it need to be for our community? How do we have a collective conversation and co-design our way forward in that space? So, yeah, I'm, very, I'm quite fascinated by leadership and I, I just think oh, I feel completely at home in this profession. You know? Yeah, I feel that very much. I like being in education. However, the conversations I've had probably over the last nearly two years on this podcast is how much educators love the profession, but how stifled they often feel by the system. And you touched on that before about how do we have the bravery maybe or the foresight to move forward and to be willing to shift the system. And what are your thoughts around that? Like how, what's the how behind that? It's funny, Laura, I'm a practitioner at heart. I'm, I'm kind of in the field. I've tried other roles. Like I did some kind of policy work in a system leadership role for a time. It wasn't, it wasn't my place, at least at that point in my life. So mm-hmm. I, I do think what I've learned over the last few years in becoming more interested in how systems shift is looking at the different ways that they can shift. So the how, I mean, to quip, like if we all just pause for a moment, we just had this enormous shock, this enormous yeah. kind of revelation, reckoning. It really does feel like a lot of the world is on fire at the moment you know, particularly with the news that's going on all over the place. If it's not pandemic, it's war. If it's not war, it's, you know, shifts in 
in bodily autonomy in parts of the world. I mean, there's a lot of really significant things happening right now. So the how I think is if all of us came together and decided to act differently tomorrow, then we see transformation, then we see revolution. I don't think there's been many successful revolutions, actually. I mean, the industrial ones have been quite successful, I guess. The industrial revolutions, all four of them. Um, But so I think how does change happen? Well, it happens when a small group of committed citizens decide to do something different, to paraphrase Margaret Mead, you know. It's the only thing that makes change is when human beings come together and they say, we're going to put aside some of our distances. We're going to disagree respectfully. We're going to enter dialogue. And we're actually going to do what's best for future generations. And I've learned a lot from Indigenous peoples around Australia and around the world, and especially the worldviews that are also part of many cultures, which is sometimes we're just so stuck in the what's the short-term fix? How do, we, you know, how do we maximize our academic outcomes this year? When really the conversation is what's good for future generations, seven-generation thinking, as it's sometimes called from Indigenous worldviews. What my descendants in seven generations, what kind of world do I want to have left them? How do I be, critically, a good ancestor? That's mm. the framing that we need. That's the piece here. Rather than let's extract everything, like in an extraction of you know, late-stage petrocapitalism that we might be in right now, for example, with gas yeah. prices. You know, it's really, there's, there's, there are other ways. And there's lots mm. of amazing leadership around this. So bottom up, top down, I think is the way we do it. We do need people that are advocates at higher levels, ministers, people working in government, people in the private sector to show, you know, to really to unlock the collective agency. And then it's up to us as practitioners and people doing the work in, mm. in schools, in early learning centers, in universities and vocational colleges to say, okay, well, how do we shift this pedagogical core? How do we change the purpose of education? So it's not just about a job. It's about mm. thriving in life. I think most teachers are aspirational and they are hopeful. But when it comes down to the reality of what you have to do day to day and also what society in a way, parents in a way, expect from education, it doesn't quite marry up very well. Mm. Often I'm in a high school, so, you know, we want good results because if you have good results, then you have secured a future for you know, and I think that with the great resignation that's going on right now, we're starting to yes. see that perhaps that one model of success is no longer success for a lot of people. But it's one thing for the people and the practitioners to understand that. But until others value in society that that's what good education is, we're kind of stuck a little. And in terms of change, how do we show that three, four generations down the track, this will be better? When we can't necessarily show that on paper right now, we can't say, look, this is our, this is our evidence because we want evidence straight up and it takes time to get it. So it's, it, to me, it's kind of a hard one. You, uh, you expecting a solution from me here? I mean, <laughs> Laura, so. I'm, I'm expecting, I don't know. I don't know these conversations that other people are having. Yes. Is this something that. Well, yeah, look, abs- just, absolutely. Let me, let yeah. me reflect on a few things. Um, Please. Because I think you put it so well, right? First point might be that as educators, we have a very clear sense of purpose. In all the work I've done all over the world with many, many, many people, you know, you ask educators, you know, what level of purpose do you feel in your work? And it's always quite high, you know. And so sometimes this is used against us because, and, you know, I was lucky to speak with Julia Gillard recently and she spoke about this, you know, we have to value what's been considered traditionally as women's work and teaching has been considered women's work as is nursing and caring, a lot of the caring. But yet during a pandemic, what matters most the economics of care, 
You know, so like, really, this is how we need to elevate, you know, the level of status. And it's not even just like changing, it's just remembering, I think. Mm. It's like a self-remembering, a collective remembering of what matters most in our lives, human connection, human growth, human development, collective thriving, social prosperity, a social floor and an ecological ceiling, to quote Kate Rayworth, professor of economics at Oxford, you know, her donut economic model. I mean, this is, this is what we need to talk about is like the economics, the ecology, the education. It's usually a frame that I use quite often in my very small role to try to shift public consciousness and, and, you know, inspire and kind of equip leaders and educators and everybody else that will listen. So, I mean, you're absolutely right about the, the struggle between like, here's what the reality and here's what we aspire to be. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's the, the first point I would make. I think the, the second is, and you said this just before, you know, we need to get good results. So we need to have a conversation about what results are they? Like mm. what parts of our humanity, our humanness, are the ones we're elevating most? And this really is, you know, as someone that does a lot of work in social and emotional learning, again, in a very privileged way, at some global levels with Karanga, the, Gl- the Global Alliance for Social, Emotional Learning and Life Skills. It's yeah. like how do we elevate the social dimensions of learning and the emotional dimensions of learning alongside the academic dimensions of learning. And then we can add physical and spiritual to that. And then we have a multidimensional model of well-being, right? And in my view, whole brain and whole body education. I mean, what, what yeah. is success is the, is the question here, Lauren. I think as educators, we often, we go, well, okay, if success is the ATAR, and let's actually use that as a metric here in Australia. You know, the Australian tertiary admissions rank, which you get 99.95 as a maximum. And you basically rank, we rank our young people against each other. And we're one of the only countries in the world to do that. Not the only, but one of the only. And, and that just seems cruel because can anyone actually stand up and say the ATAR is a full expression of all the unique aspects that I am, my strengths, my challenges, my, my curiosity, my, you know? No, no, we can't really. And no. so there's, there's a conversation and this is happening now where the ATAR, we're moving beyond the ATAR era. It's happening and it will happen. The question is how fast will it go and how equitable will it be? And this has been some of the work of Learning Creates Australia that I've been involved in for two years. It's how do you build a new recognition system? Because when you do that, to your point earlier around what the expectations from parents and from society is around what you do and produce as an educator, then you start to have a different conversation. If we're moving to learner profiles, which will be one of the main adopted new recognition pieces, credentials, Mm. frankly, you know, that's good. And how do we... How do we have this social, emotional, cognitive convergence? That's the future of learning for me. And so then you and I can have a conversation as teachers and say, well, yeah, they're doing really well academically, but can they communicate? Are they emo- can they regulate their emotions? Are they happy? You know, how socially connected are they? You know, mm. I mean, the levels that you look at mental health right now, they, it's epidemic. It's an absolute mm. epidemic. The pandemic just, it, you know, the great... It's a great disruptor, but it's a great revealer as well. And I think yeah. to your earlier point, this is why we have a great resignation. And what they try to frame here is a great reshuffle in Australia. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's actually <laughs> people are thinking about what is my life's work? Like what, what brings yeah. me joy? And those are the right questions to ask. And where there is misalignment, the role of all of us as educators and designers is to create something new alongside what exists. And we can then see the, adop- the adoption of that over time. I mean, that's transformation. In a, in a staged way. I want to hear about this learning profile oh. that you're talking about. Okay, sure. What does that look like? Well, 
I mean, I try, sometimes I reflect on myself as um, an education futurist, but I always put aspiring before pretty well anything that I self-refer because I'm always okay. aspiring to it. I'm never going to get to this point. It's the best and worst thing about life and about being an educator. You're never the best leader or best educator. So you have to kind of recommit and then let go and then recommit. But this idea of being a futurist, I'm very interested in, in like what's emerging. What are the trends? What are the drivers? What are the big social, cultural, technological changes that we're seeing in our world? Now, one of them is around moving away from standardization to personalization in every part. The medical industry is a great example of this. Like right now you can go and if you're you know, experiencing cancer, sadly, you can go and get a personalized treatment for your genotype. I mean, that's what's happening with technology. So in education, we'll see the same thing happening, which is where instead of everyone yeah. taking the same exam, high stakes, closed book exam, which again, I'll be provocative. Why, why are we still doing them? Like what value does that give Seriously. it? Like what we call resourcefulness and, and you know, entrepreneurship in the real world, we call cheating in schools. It doesn't make any sense. Yes. yes. I agree. Oh. How often do you have to sit in a room without any resource available to you? It's so, so, it's so bizarre. rare that that would it's ever really happen. It's really bizarre. So to, to your yeah. question around a learner profile, and there's many things, there's profiles, mm. then there's portfolios, and there's learner passports, and they're all slightly different, and there's a lot of fragmentation. And part of our role at Learning Creates Australia is trying to build a bit of a corpus that understands, well, here might be the best way forward for systems. What happens is you create a, somewhat called a jagged profile, and so you have a, a wheel and then you have all these different dimensions, right? And then you have on the side, you have the things you're interested in. You have a kind of a portfolio of different projects, et cetera. And then you have, you know, some of the things that make you who you are. Because what, mm-hmm. I, in my view, again, and, you know, I celebrate academic performance. I think it's great. It's just, it's just a narrow view of what we should expand. So learner profiles are going to be one of the tools that expand our understanding of who we are, what we can do, and what we know. Those three things. Instead of what we know, right? Which might be traditional models, legacy yeah. models of schooling. I like, what do you know? Tell me what you know. Show me what you know. Well, now we're moving into this do something with what you know. That's great. It's, it's content meets skills and really critical. And this is, I think, one of the big things I reflect on all the time is that it's not just what you do with what you know, it's who you are as you do things with what you know. It's like, what's the identity shift? Like, who yeah. are you really? What are your strengths? Yeah. What's your character? You know, I've been quite influenced by the fields of obviously well-being, social emotional learning, positive psychology. I mean, these things really, are, I think, are just, we need to put them into the center of education and have rigorous, critically, really rigorous, high-quality learning and teaching that isn't rigid, that isn't, you know, like, oh, can we be adaptable, flexible? No, you can't. And then, you, of course, you step into the workforce. Mm-hmm. That is the first thing they ask you to do is be flexible and adaptable, create new value, collaborate yeah. across teams, yeah. sometimes across cultures and languages. So. The learner profiles, I think, will be really interesting. And there's a range of different like, models that are out there. The Mastery Transcript Consortium, for example, there's a, a number, I think, 30-odd or 40 schools here in Australia that are prototyping them. There's a few hundred in the United States. That's one of them. South Australia, Certificate of Education, the SACE Board are also implementing this in South Australia. And I have to say, I think that's nation-leading work. And that's not just because I'm a South Australian mm-hmm. uh, by background. Um, <laughs> so again, and so that's going to be alongside an academic transcript. So they're going to be side-by-side to begin with. And I think eventually the learner profile will just absorb in the academic performance because we do want high quality content knowledge. It's not as people that go like, you don't need to know anything anymore. You can Google it. They're not, in my view, they're not correct. I mean, as educators, like no, look at the no, learning I sciences. Agree. Yeah, we know things around automaticity and cognitive load theory. 
right? Like you do need some level of base knowledge. Otherwise, you can't even enter the conversation yes. for the same reason you need to be able to yeah. have reading comprehension. You know, literacy and numeracy matter greatly, but they are the floor, not the ceiling, uh, which was a wonderful quote I heard from someone I cannot recall. So great quote. Great quote, yeah, right? It's like great. it's not an either or. We need to move beyond this Cartesian Newtonian, right? Which is let's divide all of ourselves into parts and the whole world into parts. Yeah. And actually, we are separate from everything. You know, it's the holistic indigenous worldview that I think we need to bring back. And this idea, and this is one of my favorite quotes that I don't know, I, I think I've, uh, it's just a reflection I have, which is we are actually Venn diagrams. We're not spreadsheets. And yet the world and our mm. systems treat us as spreadsheets. And we have to like pretend to be like part of ourselves in one context and part rather than being, you know, fully human and stepping into a classroom as an educator, as a learner as a leader, as a parent, fully human. How do we get to that? Aspirational, yes, mm. but I really think that's, that's the big trend. And I think our conversation, when we have it in 10 years' time, Laura, will reflect on this moment and we'll say, well, isn't it interesting what's happened? Well, I'm a parent of a prep, right? And it's interesting the conversations you have with the parents mm. in prep because everyone's concerned about the things that their child is not quite mastering, and you see it all in a prep classroom because you see the art and you see the numeracy. And whereas, you know, in high school, it's all kind of isolated. And I was having this conversation and this mum has a boy who won the cross country, but his artwork looks like rubbish and he doesn't care. And he's sort of lower on the reading scale. And then my daughter let everybody pass her in the cross country and thought it was just a fun game, but her artwork is so beautiful. And then I'm looking at where she is on the reading scale and everyone's kind of just wants them to be perfect at everything. And these are the conversations that we have. And I think, but they can't be perfect at everything. In fact, I would love my daughter to have more opportunity to do the artwork that she loves to do that she only gets to do once a fortnight because she loves that and that's where she feels the most empowered and excited. And she comes home and she's like, oh, we had to do reading circles today. I never get to go into the art room. And so this is the thing, like we as educators decide what is valuable in education and parents go, oh, well, then why, why aren't they good at that? And it's like if you've remembered who your child was six months ago before they even entered prep, did you care about all that stuff? Or did you just in awe of the human that they were? You know, so it's, it's, it's a really interesting shift going into the school system and how it impacts the way we even value our own children. I just sort of take a step back and watch it all happen. I find it really interesting the conversations and how they shift the minute you get into an educational institution. Laura, I'm, I'm interested in this question. What is it that you want for your daughter as she moves through life at the end of schooling? I want my daughter to be exactly who she is and have the tools to be the best version of her. Mm. That's what I want. So results don't mean a lot to me. The amount of people that said to me, oh, the NAPLAN, I'm like, I don't look at that. Yes. I want my child to have the skills and the confidence, which I think is another issue that we tend to lose throughout schooling, to be exactly who she needs to be in the world. That sounds great. Do you, so my, my question is to the other parents listening to this podcast, like what, what is it that you would like for your young person as they move into the world? And I think what's really interesting is, the, the answers will be the same. They'll be, I want them to be happy. I want them to be successful in life. I want them to have the skills they need. 
And yet sometimes we do because of our negativity bias and the love that we have for our family. Uh, we say we focus on the negatives as opposed yeah. to uplifting the positives. I mean, this is, this is, it's kind of interesting that we've just ended up with a system like this. And so you've just explained beautifully why we need to move from a standardized system to a personalized system. And it can be done and it's complex work and mm -hmm. people like yourself and all the other educators that are listening probably to this podcast are engaging in this work every single day. And so, yeah, it is about us realizing what's possible and then also educating our parents on this same journey. You know, the old cliche, everyone has an opinion about education because everyone's experienced it at some level. So everyone's the expert. And really the trust yeah. that yeah. needs to be returned to educators is one of the critical pillars of this work being successful. How do we ensure that, you know, that there is trust, that actually, you know, we have experience, we've studied, it's a profession, it's not a volunteer, like we're not volunteering, we've been through many undergraduate and often postgraduate degrees and really understanding the science, the art, the yeah. craft of human growth and development. Uh, it's, so, it's so interesting that, that this is kind of where we are and it's really actually it can be quite disheartening when you hear stories of people talk about their schooling experiences and how, how much they hated school. And you think, you know, and this, this reflection that some, for some people, school is a great place to find out what they're not good at, Laura. Mm -hmm. And so if your daughter is really, in, you know, feels alive by art, how can we construct that so that that's a possibility? So she's doing 50% of her time. Yes, she still needs to do the reading circle. And do so, yes, by the way, not with whole language or <laughs> synthetic phonics, but with systematic phonics, which is a joining together of that debate. You know, so, you know, we know how learning happens and in learning to read happens. A very unnatural act, by the way, for our human, for our human brain until a few, a few centuries ago. So, yeah. you know, this, I think this is a really just great moment for us to realize we need to reimagine what education can be. And the other thing I just, I'd reflect on with your response, Laura, as you said, I don't care about her results. What I think is interesting mm. about that is that you do care, but you, the way you understand results is broader. And this is part of this shift. It's like the result is, the result, what's the result? My daughter feels embodied. She's happy. She's exploring something she cares about. Yes, those are great results. Yeah. What they aren't are the narrow suite of academic yes. results, which is the current success metric. And there's no way that will be the success metric when your beautiful daughter graduates in 14 years or 13 oh, I years. I hope so. I hope you're right. I really do. Well, we have to be right. That's, that's my hope. And I, I think this is probably a big reason of doing the podcast too is listening to the other people that are out there hoping to make more of a shift than perhaps what I'm able to see in the classroom. That's, that's great. I mean, I, I, no, I believe it. My podcast as well, it's really my learning made transparent and it's wonderful. It's one, I mean, I actually think anyone listening to this that wants to kind of learn something, doing a podcast is a great way to go. Um, and yeah. it's so easy to Real do. And you just start to speak with people. And I think, Laura, like, yeah, I really just see myself as someone trying to elevate the great work that already exists in education. There are, there are models, there are ways that this can be done differently and it already is happening you know the future's already here it's just not evenly distributed it's a great quote by alvin toffler the future's already here mm -hmm. it's just unevenly distributed and so and what we don't want to happen is that there's this distribution where we have all these kind of whole language really supportive well-being oriented environments 
that are only in affluent parts of the world and affluent parts of Australia. We really, you know, talent is universal, but opportunity is not. And so we, we yes. really want to create this world where if you have something to contribute that's powerful and uniquely you, the irreducible consciousness that you are, you know, the human being that you are in this life, you know, that's what we want to elevate. And when you do that well, when you make these investments in human capital, well, then you have a successful country, a successful nation, one that can think critically, that can do future-oriented work, that can shift as the world of work shifts, which it really is rapidly doing right now. And that ultimately we remember kind of who we are, you know, as human beings, which is what do we care about most? Probably love, connection, relationships, agency, the ability to create, to innovate, to build new companies, create new services, to work with nature, not against it, you know. That's the base level. And so from there is where we kind of reimagine education. And then the challenge is for all of us in the roles we play. And that includes your role, Laura, as someone with a platform and someone in a classroom, is then we need to remake it. And so the imagination is important, but then it's, okay, how do we remake this? And that's, those are yeah. processes of design. And that's where the courage comes in. It's the courage to allow ourselves to change, to transform. You know, this beautiful, I think it's, I'm really getting on the quote bandwagon, I've got to be honest. But I'm a, I love it. I can't help. Like, um, yeah, I'm impressed. But, I'm impressed. No, but this idea, like we're all out there trying to change the world, but we must start by changing ourselves. You know, it's Mahatma Gandhi. Mm -hmm. And that, it's so true. It's like, so who wants change? Everyone puts up their hands. And then you see that cartoon. It's like, who wants to change? And people are like, oh, I'm not so sure about that. And it's who wants to lead the change. It's like, oh, geez, I'm going to have to put my head on the chopping block. And it's been my own journey. <laughs> You know, how do we actually yeah. step forward and say with conviction, this is the world we need to fight for. And then let's bring people together to do that. And you don't start with the most negative energizers, the laggards, the rocks in organizations like schools. You can't do that. You need to start with the early adopters and then the early majority will get on board. And then the late majority, they won't listen to the innovators, but they'll listen to the early majority. And this really is how mm -hmm. change happens. Roger's curve of adoption. So... I am optimistic, you can tell, but I try to think of myself as an action-based optimist. It's not about just hoping. Like, don't have hope. Yeah. This is Cornell Westner here. It's not enough to just have hope. You have to be hope. You have to embody hope. You have to be the model and also be a driver for, for shifts in understanding. Give people tools that can help them change their own minds as opposed to shouting at each other from different parts of different arguments, which really does little service, just distracts us all from the real issues and the real possibilities, I think. So as somebody who's moved out of the conventional system, I suppose, you're now, you know, like a what? What am I, Laura? Idea, <laughs> like somebody who offers possibility and strategy and inspiration perhaps to people that are stuck in the system. If you are sitting in a room of leaders, principals, mm -hmm that are in a traditional school, what are the kind of things you would like to impart? What are the kind of ideas and values you would like them to take away after listening to you speak? That's a great reflection. And um, I'm always interested to see how, like what you think, what you think I do. Um, but you know what I mean? That's Yeah, you know, of course I do. Feeling. Yeah, yeah. The, I, yeah. I, um, I mean, I, this is what I do often. Um, I've just spent the last week across New South Wales, South Australia, Victoria, you know, doing this kind of work. And I do have to say... Often I'm sitting in the rooms of leaders that are open already. Okay. Um, so that's interesting because I feel like often because of the, the framing that we have around innovation or change, it's the people that are open to that. 
process. I'm rarely working in rooms where there's a level of significant negative energy about okay. doing more crap. But, you know, what I would say is I use like a why, what, how frame, I guess. It's like why this change? Why this work? What does it mean? And then how do we do it? So social emotional learning, like why does social emotional learning matter? Well, and then I'll go through and show the entire, all the global changes that are happening and the connections that I have through those global networks, you know, World Economic Forum, OECD, World Bank, UNESCO, United Nations, Sustainable Development Goals. You know, like you go through, like that's the global shift. That's our representative bodies, you know. What is, what is a national level? Like what are we saying about the future? What is the private sector? What are the big four consulting companies say about the shifting world of work? So you can start there. And my mm. intention there is to really take everyone on a journey. And the journey is not here are the solutions. The journey are The journey is... Are we asking the right questions? And my reflection is absolutely not. Most of us, right, including myself, we've been asking the wrong questions for long periods of time. Like, how do I be more successful? How do I ensure that my status is, you know, all that stuff. It's really the real work is what are the better questions? The questions like not, Laura, tell me what you think. You know, tell me what do you want to do when you grow up? Terrible question to ask young people with respect. Terrible, terrible question, right? Question. The question is, what makes you feel alive? Yeah. What, what do you want to give to the world? Like who, who do you feel really connected to? What, what do you love to learn? What, when, when you're learning something, what is it that actually makes time disappear? Those yeah. are great questions. What is, what is success? Laura, even our conversation on results, what results do we care about most? Let's change what results mean because obviously in our conversation and actually the broader conversation, they're still just academics. It's just ATAR is the result. Well, the result is basically what's happened after a process. Mm. And so if we can ask ourselves better questions and then I'll show some of the different conceptual models, the pedagogical core that's shifting, things like agency, right? Are we doing agency-led learning or is it still passive transmission? right? This, we have to change as teachers. No longer the instructors, we're now the guides. Yes, we still do direct and explicit instruction on occasion. Of course we do, because there are just things that must be learned and in a particular way, a very structured way. But then, of course, that can be as part of an inquiry frame where we're asking ourselves a bigger question about the world outside the window where the real learning is happening. So those questions, I think, are part of it, share a whole range of different learning models. Here's the whole corpus you know the plethora of things going on and none of them are perfect they're all all models are broken but some are useful you know as they say and then you get down to okay what do we do about it and i'll often use just design like i i consider myself an aspiring designer now and i never would have you know because I, I was like design what do you mean design i was never good at drawing i didn't okay. have any real ideas but i've spent enough time as a design thinker and someone yeah. focused on human-centered design particularly very luckily some work through the stanford d school and like it really is like design is simply here's an idea, let's turn it into something real. So you can have an idea as a teacher. Okay, what's the idea? What's the challenge? The question? Let's ideate. Let's define it. Ideate. Let's prototype it. And that shifts into practice. And without design, I don't think we get to the change. No. We, we end up with the why and the what and then nothing happens. And I think this is one of the big system challenges we have. We have all this professional learning that sometimes isn't impactful because people, we're not going deeply enough into and I would even say the identity space around who am I as a teacher? How do I manifest my own practice? And so when we get down into that, that's where we start sharing from the collective intelligence of the room. The best professional learning I've ever had is walking into someone else's classroom, into someone else's school and having a deep discussion. Like that's really powerful. 
like my small role can be to try to shift awareness or consciousness and to help people to become designers and education futurists themselves. You know, we need to visit the future often, in my view, because we're working in yeah. a futures industry with young people. And then we need to return powerfully to the present to design our way forward, to learn our way forward. So that's kind of what it would look like. And yeah, I mean, I'm just giving it the best shot I can, Laura, you know, and trying to be the same thing that you aspire for your daughter. Try to be my authentic self as I do all that, to be kind of imperfect and uncertain and to actually own that and realize it's, it's okay. Mm. We're all just doing the best that we can with the tools we have right now. It's even interesting too, as I reflect back on my own educational journey in that I am now more authentic even as a teacher than I used to be. Because when I was mm. younger, I thought that this was the way to teach. And I didn't, I don't yeah. think I even had enough understanding of my own identity to be able to teach in a different way. I just kind of modeled others. And I see that so often in the teens that we teach that we taught, I'm an English teacher and a science teacher, yes. but mostly in English, they just lose voice. They sit passively and they wait for you to tell them what to think, how to interpret, what's valuable. I remember when I was at school, we would annotate texts and we would wait for the teacher to tell us what to highlight. I got a bizarre thing. Like, why, what do you think is important? Like, I can't tell you what quote's important to you. You have to decide for yourself. And yet we tell students all the time, this is what is important. This is what you have to highlight. Make sure you put that quote in here. And there was a really awesome teacher that I teach with who wanted to sort of measure this. And we were doing a short story and she read the story and she offhandedly made a comment about what she valued in the story, didn't spend much time on it, and then gave them a little exit card to, tell, to ask them what they thought was important. And they'd all written down that little comment that she said quickly about what she valued, mm. all of them. Interesting. And I did it. I didn't say anything. And they all had some more obviously insightful than others, but they had to think on their own. And I did it privately so they didn't have to share they didn't have to worry about being wrong or right but we compared that and the minute a teacher says something students go well that's right that's must be the right answer and so I think that we haven't given students enough autonomy to to decide what's right and to decide what's important and to decide what's valuable and unfortunately because we are all eventually getting to that one exam which we all know is ridiculous we feel pressure to give them the right answer and to spoon feed them to that place of, well, at least if they have that, they can answer that correctly and then they can do that thing. It's like, yeah, but the fact is that I wasn't until I was in my 30s that I started to really understand who I was because I was so mm. busy trying to be right, yeah. you know? Yes. That's a wonderful reflection. <laughs> um, and all the therapy. Like, and it's so therapy. true. <laughs> Well, no, but actually, well, Alain de Botton, who I quite like, is a philosopher and author. He says, we, you know, if you're, a, if you're an adult and you live in the world, you need mm. therapy because you live totally. in the world. And he's right. I mean, all of it, you know, like even the whole piece of we prove, we ask our young people and, and teachers, teachers, we ask our teachers to prove themselves all the time. That can just be an email from a parent. It's like, prove to me you know what you're doing, you know? And suppose, but what we should be is improving. Mm. And this is something that Guy Claxton and Bill Lucas talk about, you know, improving versus proving. But I actually think there's another stage that I, that I heard recently from, yeah, from an Aboriginal um, educator. It's like there's actually a stage before that which is healing. You know, so heal, are you healing right now? Are you improving or are you proving? 
And like we want all three of those things to happen. You want to be on the field playing a game, performing at your absolute best in flow. But, you know, you still want to be good in practice. Mm. And if you break your arm, yeah, we want you to like heal the arm. We don't want to make you run Mm. laps again. And there's something around mental health that we must be more attuned to as well is that we ask, because it's not visible, we ask people with effectively, metaphorically broken limbs mm. to run laps, you know, and it's it's not helpful. We need them to heal. So we need to bring in, frankly, healing work, yeah. which, you know, often is talk about social emotional learning, right? How do you do self-awareness and self-regulation? You know, how do we, you know, be able to really support each other to do that best work? Yeah, I mean, that's that's just a really great reflection. The other piece I'd say quickly is, you know, student voice and student choice. Yeah, all for it. Like, sign me up. But really, what we're moving towards is student agency. And I would go further than that. I'd say learner agency. Because then what we do is we think about teachers. Yeah, because of course we want our young people to succeed. And so if the success metric, if the way we think of results is like literally the exam, mm. well, of course, we're going to try to set them up to do well within that paradigm. Yes. Because we care deeply about them. That's right. So it's, a, you know, it's quite a lot to ask them to do anything else. I had George Koros on. I don't know if you know him. He's Canadian. I do know George. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So I have a lot of respect for him. I think he's great, but he's very like blunt about what he says and thinks about things, which I kind of makes you kind of go, oh, okay. All right. Let me think about that. So we're talking about agency. And he said, I'm going to be really out there and tell you that I don't actually believe that there's much student agency at all. I said, what do you mean? And he said, because what we do is we choose the kids that we think are going to parrot back what we want. And then we get them out there at the front saying what we want them to say. And we then say, look, that's student voice. We have that. But there's nothing really that that voice is impacting at a day-to-day level. What do you think about that? Do you think that's true? Do you think that there's better ways of doing it? Do you think that we're missing the point altogether if people are doing things like that? I think doing that is better than not doing that. Okay. But I also think it's like it's it's just it's on one side of the spectrum. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll have to listen to that that interview because yeah. my, in my view, like agency is one of the missing parts to the education systems we've inherited, right? So, and it's not that we should be aspiring for student voice. We should be aspiring for agency-led learning. That means co-design. That means sitting in a circle with your learners and saying, what are we going to learn this term? Can you imagine? What might we want to learn? What are the questions that are interesting? And then, of course, yeah. we design high-quality curriculum supported by high-quality content and skill development and capability development. And then we go for it. Mm. Like agency really is elevating, shifting the power within these organizations where adults rule, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And often we feel quite comfortable as teachers because, because we then aren't necessarily challenged. We, well, I think that example you provided is a very safe example of us to be able to okay, say some things and then we may or may not grant your wishes. As opposed to literally having young people on every single recruitment panel, sitting on the governing council and governing board, being on the curriculum committees, being alongside heads of department, doing that work, you know, having alumni, people that just graduated, come back as literally like paraprofessional consultants because they literally mm. have the best knowledge about what the experience was for all of the young people. I mean, those that's more kind of agency conversation because agency really is just choice. It's choice and there's different types of it. There's economic, there's moral agency. Charlie Leadbeater is the person to talk about here. And I have to say, I just... Finished 14 episodes of, of the Learning Future podcast where we had Charlie Leadbeater and all these schools from across South Australian independent schools talking about agency. Like he was like, what are the different lessons to agency? Teachers have to be part yes. of it. It's about philosophy, 
product and practice. Those three P's coming together. You need to bring, yeah. So wonderful stuff. And I've learned so much about it. So agency, I think, is absolutely the goal we should aspire towards. I just think what we're doing in a legacy system that was designed anti-agency, it wasn't, it was literally against the concept of agency. So we just have to let go of some of those practices so that we can allow the emergence of new ones and adopt them. And yeah, I think that's the last thing I'd say on systems as well, Laura, is, you know, we've inherited mental models that, you know, we've inherited ways of doing, ways of being, ways of thinking, right, that have come from centuries past. And that's great. Like, you know, my view is actually the education system functions as it was designed. It's not broken in any real conceptual way. It's just way outdated. Right. Totally. So it functions. It literally does what it meant to do. What was it meant to do? It was meant yeah. to create millions upon millions of factory workers, standardized yes. models of education, like even the Committee of Ten, Horace Mann, the Prussian Army, like all of these things contributed to the way education happens. Replaceable parts. So if someone, you know, can't work, you get someone else that has the same base level, base skills. You know, as opposed to being mm. this kind of more human centered model where each of us have unique gifts. Uh, to share in all different ways and all different levels of community and economy. Yes. You know, so that I think is the piece here. So it's not our fault that we are where we are as educators is my view. Yeah. It is our responsibility though. So how do we, mm-hmm. how do we kind of come together and forgive ourselves as we make faux pas on the way, you know, so that we can move to this agency led strong, strong sense of belonging, creativity, being uplifted, still clear, critical thinking and discernment and help, help every single young person and every single human being in the human system to become human. And that means being fully human, embraced for all the different parts of us, doing a literal emotional check-in at the beginning of every lesson, using breath work, mindfulness, meditation, gratitude. You know, we can weave all these things in and we can still do the really interesting investigations into the intellectual world as we should. So it's not an either or. I can imagine saying to teachers, Okay, these are the skills you have, which is what we have anyway, right? The curriculum is is relatively loose. Mm. It's us that sort of bog it down with all the things that we have to do and we, you know, assign text to things and tests and all the rest. Imagine saying to a teacher, okay, these are the skills and you actually don't know yet how you're going to get there because it depends on the class you have. Like that to me would be so exciting, but I also know so many teachers that would be absolutely terrified by that. You You only have like half a page of skills and depending on the class you have, you have to figure out how you're going to do it. That would be amazing, but it would be so scary and parents would hate it. <laughs> I wonder what the young people would say because mm-hmm. I feel like they're kind of the most important people in this conversation. No what does. did it feel mm-hmm. like for them? Did they mm-hmm. feel uplifted? Did they feel energized, yeah. inspired? Did they feel equipped with new knowledge? That's really where we should go. Like with the greatest respect, parents are amazing. They care deeply for their children, but sometimes we need to let the children speak. And so... If they spoke, what would they say about that? I mean, I, one of my mentors is a guy called Larry Rosenstock, and he was the foundation principal of High Tech High in San Diego, a wonderful school network. Yeah. And I remember I, I saw him once after we just talked about, you know, the current director general for New South Wales did a great keynote about a curriculum review, a review in mm-hmm. the curriculum. And um, Larry was next, and he got up and he said, I think this is great stuff, you know, the review in the curriculum is good, but my question is what would we do if there were no curriculum? Mm-hmm. what if it was in the hands of the learners and the educators what would happen then and it's just a great provocation because what Such would happen question. is it'd probably be like we'd start to teach with a bit more passion 
You know, yes, we want yeah. we want rigor and we want frameworks and structures, but we don't want to be so so captured by this is the way it must be, so patterned by our past present sense of self, as opposed to the present future sense of self. Of what's the possibility here? How do we become generative in our thinking and regenerative in the way uh, that we teach, the way that we treat our earth? You know, all of those things that that link together. So I think it's a really great experiment, and there are places doing it. You know, like you know, going to an un- really? well, you know, the conferences do this. It's called an unconference. You hold a conference with no agenda, yeah. and then you're like, well, what do we want to talk about? Or open space methodology is another way of doing this. Exactly, you feel what's in the room, and then you go in that direction. And it's incredibly innovative and generative spaces. I mean, it's not that it needs to always be this way, but you know, even experiments like Genius Hour, which kind of was influenced by Google Time, Ooh, for example, that. it's just great. It's an hour though, and we're like. If, if young people are when well-structured and rigorous, like all project-based learning and inquiry learning, well-structured, rigorous, right? Not just free-for-all, laissez-faire, cool, let's just all have some free time. No, no, not that. Not that way. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So when it's mm-hmm. done well, like people love it. Like they feel completely, oh, wow, this is my passion. I'm going to work on this thing. I'm investigating. I'm using my skills in real-world context. But what do we do? We give them one hour. Like isn't that interesting? Yes. Isn't that interesting? Let's try a day, see what happens. Hell, let's try 50% of the week and see if that's possible. But for that to be true, we need to shift some of the system conditions. And this is why I think we need mm. to like accept the great works going on now and then look at the system conditions. And there's no single evil individual we can point the finger at and say, you're the problem. You know, it's really the way that <laughs> systems, they, they function in all aspects of life, including economically where they want to maintain their own homeostasis. They repel innovation because it, it can challenge the existing power structures. And so, yes. you know, this is a challenge with departmentalization as well within government. It's the same thing. Eventually, you, you can get kind of frozen as opposed to really being able to kind of move things forward to allow there to be modern public policy, modern educational policy work. I am optimistic. There's just lots of work to do, but... We'll, if we come together, I think we'll get there, Laura. We really have to. Mm. There's no the – other, the other scenarios are a little too dystopian for me. You know, like hundreds of millions of young people still disillusioned when they get to 18, you know, as opposed to kind of, yeah, like dealing with a lot of the pressures, you know, and sometimes just coping, but actually with a real sense of who they are in the world, what it is they might want to learn more about, what skills they want to develop, yeah, and what knowledge are they going to pursue. You know, like, who are they? What do they want to do? What might they need to know? Like, that's the order, you know? And you can go behind, like, who do we need to be is the deeper question. Great. Well, we need to be people that care more about our environment, care more about each other, right, that come together in communities to solve some of these wicked problems as they're framed. You know, that to me, I think, is the right directionality as opposed to show me what you know. Okay, let's put some skills to the knowledge, all right, great. And let's put, sprinkle a little bit of character education in there at the end. And then let's actually do a, 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 a task where we'll create kind of an, an assessment task, which you'll send to me as the teacher, which I'll mark and then with a red texter and then I'll send back to you. <laughs> you know, like they, that, can, that process can work okay, but I feel that there are more powerful ways of doing it by flipping that model. What's the real world, the yeah. real question? Young people are in the world today. It's not about preparing them for the workforce or preparing them for the, the work. You know, the world, yeah, they're, they're in it. it. They're in it. They're experiencing it. Yeah. They're taken to the streets at times, yeah. you know? So let's listen to them. Let's elevate the power they have in our societies and in our organizations. And maybe if we do that, we come together. In fact, 
I'm sure we'll, we'll be incredibly overjoyed by by what young people can do when we give them the space and permission to actually do it. Like they ri- they rise to the challenge. People behave as we treat them to behave. You see study after study from psychology. Put people in a prison, treat them as criminals. Yeah, they act like criminals. But, you know, that's not the way it needs to be. You can look all across the world at the criminal justice systems. Like Hawaii, for example, I just read this, just released its last juvenile female inmate. They don't have one woman in juvenile, in juvie, anywhere in the island. Why? Because they focused on healing, not handcuffs. Isn't that interesting? Oh, there's a whole world here, Laura. We won't go into it. But, you know, like I, I think this is, this is kind of how I try to link all of these ideas together for the work that we do day to day. And I would say for every single educator listening to this podcast, like what you do matters. Like what you do every mm. single day matters. You are literally rewiring the brains of the young people in front of you and you are shifting their perspective on the world through the experiences that you create, through the environment that you cultivate in the ecosystem in which you work and live and learn. And so I just want to say thank you from me because it is the most important job in our world. It's this economy of care. It's caring for another human being, seeing the potential within them, lighting the fire, not feeling the pale, lighting the fire. Uh, and it can be overwhelming and there's a lot of, well, the data, as you know, Laura, you know, a lot of people are like, do I want to keep doing this? Uh-huh. And the only commitment I can make is that in the very small way, in the small communities in which I operate, I'm doing my absolute best to try to shift some of the system conditions and the collective awareness, the collective consciousness about what schools are for, how incredible educators are, and why we must place all of our attention on developing our young people to be great human beings, to be very clever and intelligent as well, and to be able to build new things and create a great country and a great community. My last question always is a big life lesson. So something that's happened in your life that has shifted the way you perceive things or has maybe taken you in a different trajectory. So something in life that has been a big lesson that you could impart to our audience. I'm just feeling how deep I should go on this one, Laura, and I'll go <laughs> where my intuition calls me to go. Um, here's my life lesson. <laughs> because life lesson. <laughs> 12 rules for a living. Um, for a lot of my life, I thought I was my emotions and I thought I was my ego, right? And... So I would then allow my emotions to drive my pattern behaviors. And so my life lesson is that I realized only a kind of few years ago that I had been seeking validation outside myself for most of my 37 years. What I've realized is that the most important thing that I can ever realize is actually what is the relationship to myself and if I can actually heal the parts of me, particularly as an Australian white cisgender man um, and all the privilege that that has. Like if I can actually move through the world as someone that actually loves myself and realizes, yeah, I don't need to prove myself to anyone else, the chips on my shoulder, like I can let all of that go. Just be yourself and try to be of service in some useful way. That's the life lesson is that actually the more like the conversation, the self-talk you have is the most important conversation you'll ever have in your life. Because your mind will pick up on the way you feel about yourself and then you'll literally live out whatever that pattern might be. So, yeah, allow yourself to treat yourself as you were a best friend. Like really nourish the person that you are. Because from that place, I think, 
from a place of wholeness as opposed to a place of fear, I think that's when we can tap into our deepest potential to make an impact as an educator, as an innovator, as a leader, as a citizen, really. Mm-hmm. So, as a human. As yeah. a human. So, yeah, the inner work is as important as anything outside, you know, and in fact, eventually I think the separation literally dissolves completely, which is, you know, we are creating our reality. We won't go into the quantum physics realm <laughs> yet, but um, again, like, <laughs> another, conversation, a, another, conversation another conversation over a yeah. good cup of tea. But yeah, <laughs> so that's my life lesson really. It's, it's focus on your self-talk and how well do you know yourself? Because the more you know yourself, the more you're able to give to the world. And that's how we can structure our education systems. Can we have young people exiting them into the world outside of K-12, you know, with a really clear sense of who they are, what they can do and what they know and where their journey might take them. So if people have enjoyed this podcast, where else can they hear more from you and where else can they find out more about you? I don't, uh, I don't know if anyone will want to after this diatribe. I, no. Uh, no, it's been a real pleasure, Laura. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad we got here. Uh, yes. Well, I'm one of those interesting people in the world. I think I have a unique first name, last name combo. So there's Luca, L-O-U-K-A, Parry, P-A-W-I. So it's Greek-Welsh hybridization. Um, so if you Google, crazy, Google me, like it'll be there. But uh, we do some interesting work at thelearningfuture.com. And that's really how we work alongside school systems. And increasingly, you know, organizations outside of that as well. Like how do you shift towards this fully human future? Um, you know, that brings all these, like really values us as multidimensional because I think that's where we get great genius. And then I, co- I host a couple of podcasts, the Learning Future podcast and the Future City podcast because I'm interested in urban ecology as well. Mm, yeah, I'm sure people will find me, but I'm on all the, so- too many things, Laura. I'm on all the things. I'm on all the social things, although I have no notifications on. And that is... No, nor do I. Nor yeah, do I. That's because yeah. if you look at the technologists and the psychologists, they say that's exactly what you need to do. Oh, is it? Life. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Center for Humane Tech. Shout out. i got to do another shout out. Humanetech.com. Oh, every single one listening to this, you should go to this website right now. Watch The Social Dilemma if you have not yet. Oh, yeah. Right? Because they are the people behind it. Tristan Harris and the team there, they're fantastic. But really that you can look at how do you take control. You run your tech or it runs you. Like we are in the world of the attention merchants. The most valuable thing we have is our attention. So thank you for spending some of it listening to Laura and I speak. And I just want to put a shout out for anybody who gets onto Instagram. My honestly, some of my favorite content that I ever watch on Instagram is you in an airport playing a piano. Uh, <laughs> you tend to find pianos anywhere, wherever you travel. And Luca will just sit down and play the piano. And it brings me joy to see you find that piano and then find someone random, I think, at the airport to play the piano with you. Is that right? That's, you know... You're making me sound like some kind of influencer here, Laura. My, love, my no, Instagram isn't even me, open. It's, but such, <laughs> it's such beautiful content to watch. Thank you. Right? It's, Thank you, Laura. It's lovely content. Well, I'm just, just owning that. That's, that's, I'm owning it's one of the gifts that I have. I refuse to walk past a public piano. I will start playing and I will call people in, people that are a little too scared. Like I've moved through those parts of my, in my journey. Like yes. I'm, I'm very embodied. I'm very self-confident uh, to hold myself in different contexts. And so, and sometimes people aren't, they're like, oh, I don't want to dance in public. I pulled up a couple of friends at a salsa dance thing in Bondi, you know, and they have the best time, but you know, it's the little fear that stops us from getting there. So yes, from time to time, I do end up jamming on pianos with strangers. This wonderful guy called Mark. We had a wonderful, you know, jazz jam at the Adelaide airport, baby grand piano. But yeah, it is, it is very wholesome. And that's those super moments. Like those are the moments that make life just even more enriching. You know, it's the little moments of connection with strangers where you share a moment of joy 
And I mean, how do we make that the default as opposed to the screaming and outrage pornography, as it's sometimes called, that is really driving a lot of the discourse in our world? Um, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're finding that good, Laura. I'll take requests. So let, <laughs> us, let me know next time. Well, my, my son's favorite song is um, I'm Still Standing, if you feel like playing that at some oh, stage. Oh, that's a classic. Love yeah. it. Love it. All right. I'll put it on the list. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Keep going.